Heavenly Father, not that we would only believe in your son, Jesus, but that we would entrust our whole lives to him. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm not sure if even the best of preachers could get a Mother's Day sermon out of our two readings this morning, although I'm sure that you could say a lot about persecution when it comes to being a mom and the stoning of Stephen, uh, or in, even in Jesus' declaration of being the way, the truth, and the life. But here's the wonderful thing about the gospel, is that it speaks to us regardless of our station in life, and he speaks a word to all of us this morning, including mothers. In light of this, let's be thankful for our moms, uh, but also let us be faithful to the text. To that end, I want us to look at Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60, where we witness the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And the main point we are going to see this morning is we're going to talk about a faith worth dying for. Uh, We hear lots of stories about the martyrdom of Christians, and the ones that tend to stand out in our minds are the ones that took place in the life of the early church, times like Stephen here, the first Christian martyr, or Polycarp, or later on uh, people like, uh, well, uh, throughout the ages. Uh, But what we fail to recognize actually is that in the 20th century, there have been more Christians martyred than all previous centuries combined. It's a startling statistic, and even though we're early on in the 21st century, we are well on our way to topping the numbers of the 20th century. And Stephen gives us a picture of how and why someone would be willing to die for their faith in the Lord Jesus. But before we actually get to 55 through 60, we have to figure out how in the world did we get to this place. So backing up to chapter 6, we see that in the early church, the apostles there in verse chapter 6, verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and six others. So what had happened in the early church is that all of these other responsibilities began to creep into the roles of the apostles. So they were having to sacrifice their ultimate responsibility to preach and teach the word of God in order to do things that were, yes, very important, but distracted them from what they were ultimately supposed to be doing. And so rather than saying, we're just not going to do it, we're not going to care for widows and orphans and the people in the church that need that ministry, we're going to raise up seven individuals and we're going to appoint them to that task. And so these seven go about and they do wonderful things in the midst of the people of Jerusalem there in the church. And we read in verse 8 in chapter 6, Stephen was full of grace and power and was doing great work wonders and signs among the people. But, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so a group gathered themselves together and instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. And gazing at all who sat in the council, saw that he had a face like an angel. But the high priest asked him, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Well, what had happened is that Stephen is being persecuted because of what he's saying, not because of what he's doing. They thought, Stephen, we really liked you when you were doing great signs and wonders, when you were doing really nice things for the neighborhood. We liked you then, but then you started to open your mouth and start to tell us about Jesus Christ, and enough is enough. We simply don't want to hear it anymore. So you either go back to doing your good works and stop preaching, or we're going to haul you before the Sanhedrin. And of course, that's exactly what they do. And Stephen preaches a very lengthy sermon, which I hope you read uh, when you get home this week. But what we see is that Stephen got in trouble because of his preaching, not his good works. A quote often falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi is always preach the gospel and use words when necessary. Well, St. Francis actually never said that, and I'm sure St. Francis is looking down today wondering why in the world would anyone think that I said that. Uh, And yet, that is often the case in the church, that we think so long as we're living good, upright, and moral lives, that's witness enough. But Stephen's witness here says, actually, that's not true. That yes, we're called to live a life of holiness and to live out the gospel imperatives, But how will they know unless someone speaks the word of the gospel to them? How will they know about Jesus unless I tell them? And often in the church, those works of ministry and mercy, they are vitally important. But we get so busy building bridges that we never get across them. We we never actually get down to the real business of sharing the gospel with people, not just in deed, but also in word. No, Stephen had to speak. He must preach, as Jeremiah did when he said, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Now the thing about it is, is let's look and see who it is that's upset with him. Who is it that is persecuting him? Yes, those who do not believe in Jesus. But these are people who are religiously devout and are of upright character. Time and time we see in the gospel, these folks were the very ones who should have believed in Jesus. They were the ones who should have known who he was, and yet they rejected him. And here in this sermon, Stephen is laying out the story of the Old Testament to them, saying, this is the Jesus that the Old Testament talks about, the promised Messiah. These people are the religious conservatives of the day. They're the bulwarks against any false teaching. And yet they hear the message of the gospel. And not only do they reject it, we read in 754, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. 
Now this should come as no surprise to Stephen or anybody else in the life of the church. In Matthew 10, Jesus commissions his apostles with a lengthy sermon on persecution. In verse 28, he tells them, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. No doubt, Jesus is saying, people can kill your body, but only God can destroy both body and soul. So you should be more mindful of God than men. But there's a deeper principle, I think, that Jesus is articulating. And that is this. To suffer spiritual pain is far more damaging and lasting than physical pain. Absolutely, we are going to receive persecution from those outside of the church. But I don't know about you, but there have been times where those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ have hurt me worse than those outside of the church. When Lauren was my wife, seven months pregnant, I felt I should qualify that before I got into seven months pregnant. Lauren, my wife, when she was seven months pregnant uh, with our first child, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, I was diagnosed with melanoma, and the doctors assumed that it, it metastasized, and so Lauren did what every loving wife does, and she gets on Google and finds out that I have a 10% chance of survival if it's metastasized. Now, praise God, it hadn't, and uh, I had some surgery, removed it, dealt with it. Uh, but in the midst of that, having to struggle with all of that and, and having our first child being born and, and worrying about a future, that was really, really hard. But what I've found is when you're a Christian, I can actually look back on my life and even in my own ordained ministry and find certain trials that were harder spiritually than even cancer. It's one thing to look up and see real stones being cast by people who hate you. It's another to see those whom you love casting spiritual stones. This doesn't mean that we can't disagree or that you're justified in, in criticizing or, or rebuking a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. But it's sad that I've heard it oft quoted that the church is the only army that shoots their wounded. And so even in the church, we're prone to wound one another spiritually in a way that is just as damaging, if not more, than the actual stones that fell upon Stephen. And so how do we grapple with that? The trials and tribulations that we have uh, within the church and without the church. Well, we see here that Stephen, like all of us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, have nothing left to lose. Because in Jesus, we have our everything. This is why when the disciples heard and when we hear that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, we don't cringe to think, oh, that sounds awful uncomfortable, but we praise God that there is a way, that Jesus has made a way when there was no way, and in his mercy reached down and saved those of us who were so unlovable that we didn't deserve his love but deserve condemnation and yet loved us enough to die for us 
and to be raised for us. That Jesus is more than enough. He's the way. He's our truth. He's our life. He's our everything. The principle of sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is our authority, and that's not to say that tradition and reason don't have a place, but they have to stand up next to Bi the Bible and interpreted uh, by the Bible. That principle of sola scriptura was not in Luther's 95 theses when he first nailed them 500 years ago to the castle door in Wittenberg. For Luther and for Christians before him and since, the understanding of sola scriptura came by trial. When Luther arrived at the Diet of Worms to defend his biblical positions, he could only say to Charles V and those assembled, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. He was captive to the word of God because he was bound to Jesus Christ. He had nowhere else to go. Church tradition and experience had not been able to sustain him spiritually when the trials and tribulations and persecutions came. They all crumbled as houses built on the sand. He believed in sola scriptura because Luther and Christians before and since have understood all we have is Jesus. If we are not bound to the Lord Jesus in his word, we have no place else to stand and when those storms of life do come, we'll be swept away. For Stephen, the proclamation of his faith in Jesus Christ meant his death. Now very few of us will find ourselves forced to choose between living and dying. And yet the choice is still to be made in our culture. When the microphone is thrust into our faces and we are asked about our faith, what do we say? If you're like me, you'll be prone to equivocate, speak in nuance, be worried to offend, talk a lot, but not say much of anything at all. Why? Because truth be told, we find ourselves trying to bind ourselves to anything but Jesus. We have a lot of backup saviors in our lives. Social standing, economic comfort, physical appearance, none of which is bad in and of itself, but we'd like Jesus plus all of those things. And if we're honest, we find ourselves more concerned with those little gods. We're more concerned and worried about being invited to certain events, being a part of certain groups, than we are about sharing the gospel. And if Jesus were to interfere with our pursuit of these lesser gods, we often push him aside, albeit temporarily. And we think that we have it hard, those of us who are grown up. Think of the 18-year-old who is heading off to college. If they're not bound to Jesus and his word, there should be no expectation that they can stand in faith. And it won't be the professors who will scoff at their Christian faith. Well before they arrive in the lecture hall, their peers will have sorted that out for themselves. Even in Birmingham, which next to Meridian, Mississippi, may be the last city to go the way of secularism in the entire world, 
we're starting to see the Christian culture that has surrounded us, and we're finding out that that's an exception, not the rule, that most of the life of the church has been marked by persecution. The day in which we live or were living was the exception. And last Sunday after church, I went down to a grocery store in town, which I won't mention, and while I was there, I was picking up bouquets for my daughters uh, who were in a dance recital. Talk about judgment. Uh, a dance recital. And so I went to pick up the bouquets, and I was crossing. There's a little crosswalk there in the parking lot. As I was crossing, this late model Vol uh, Volvo wagon came screaming through the parking lot, and I could tell that the driver was not paying a lick of attention because they didn't see me in the crosswalk. In fact, a lady behind me started yelling at me to watch out for the car, and I think she would have just breezed by, but I froze with the flowers in my hands, and she slammed on the brakes, and the coffee that she had went all over her. And she leaned out the window, and she said, watch where you're going, you Christian profanity word. Well, I had my collar on. Now, I should have been more upset than I was, but justice had already been executed when her organic two-pump soy chai latte <laughs> had covered her body. The day's coming. I mean, I didn't have to say anything. I just had my collar on and was called out in a crosswalk. Stephen didn't hesitate to declare his faith because he understood that Jesus was all that he had. And so when the cars come screaming at you and slam on the brakes and curse you for being a Christian, it doesn't seem to hurt that much because Jesus is our everything. And to deny him would be to lose it all, even while gaining our own lives. Someone asked me once when I was a teenager, if loving and serving the Lord Jesus Christ were a crime, would you be an outlaw? A figure that I was unaware of during the Holocaust was Paul Schneider. He was a Lutheran pastor that stood up against the Nazi regime there in Germany. And he got himself in trouble time and time again until finally he was put in solitary confinement in the Buchenwald concentration camp. And while he was in that camp, he refused, as he had done earlier, to give the Hitler salute, saying that you can only receive salvation, heil, from the Lord Jesus and not from a human being. And from his cell, when he was confined there, on an Easter Sunday morning, when thousands of prisoners were assembled for the mustering, despite being severely handicapped by his torture, he climbed the wall of his cell to the tiny window, and he shouted this, Comrades, listen to me. This is Pastor Schneider. People are tortured and murdered here. So the Lord Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. His speech was interrupted by his tormentors, and shortly thereafter, they murdered him because he was so bold as to preach the gospel in terrible circumstances. Paul Schneider, Stephen, they understood what is most important, what really is necessary for survival. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. 
But when those trials and tribulations and those persecutions come, what can we expect? Was Stephen standing alone? Was Paul Schneider standing alone? Was Luther standing alone? No, look at 756. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus in the midst of all of it? He's right there. He's right there. When I think of Jesus being at the right hand of God the Father, I imagine him more in a kneeling position, interceding on our behalf. But here for Stephen, what is he doing? Yes, he's interceding. He's an advocate on his behalf. But while Stephen is knocked to his knees by the rocks of these individuals, what is the Lord Jesus doing? He's standing. And Stephen beholds him in all of his glory. The scars, the raiment, the love. And he sees Stephen in the midst of this persecution. And he stands for him. Now, this is not a stand up, stand up for Jesus sermon. It's a sermon about a God who promises never to leave you nor to forsake you. A God who is there for you whether you stand your ground like Stephen or even you find yourself failing like Peter. We all know Peter who denied the Lord Jesus even once to a little girl. And there's a story told of Peter that after he had gone to Rome to minister in the church there, the great persecution broke out under Nero and Peter decided to leave town as fast as he could to escape persecution. And on the outskirts of the city of Rome, he heard the voice of the Lord Jesus say to him, Peter, where are you going? Shoot. I've done it again. I've picked my own comfort, my own hide, over faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. And of course, Peter rode back into Rome, and he died. He chose to be crucified upside down because he did not believe himself to be worthy to even be crucified in the manner in which Jesus was crucified. All of these individuals were overwhelmed and consumed by the love of God in Jesus Christ. They understood that they were not their own. They belonged to Jesus. Each newborn servant of the crucified bears on his brow the mark of him who died. Lifting high the cross is not confined to an hour on Sunday mornings, but it is the song of our lives. So this morning, whether you're a Stephen who stands boldly, or whether you're like Peter and me, who struggle to be faithful in the midst of persecution, I leave you with this final story. John Duncan was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the 18th, 18th and 19th centuries. And there in the Scottish tradition and in one point the English tradition, the congregants would come forward and gather around a table to receive communion. And as the cup and the bread were passed around, John Duncan was so overwhelmed by his inadequacy and sinfulness that he let them pass by, even as the pastor. And then he noticed a woman with tears streaming down her face that when the bread and the wine came to her, she let them pass as well. And convicted by the Holy Spirit of God, Duncan got up and walked over to the table, grabbed the bread and the wine, and walked over to this woman and said, Take these, woman. They're for sinners. Whether you stand like a lion or whether you have a weak heart and you fall like Peter, 
I pray this morning that you would know Jesus as your everything. Because whether you stand or fall, you are his, and he stands for you. Amen.